So good morning. Welcome to Grace Me Church. I've been gone for a while. I've been all over the place. So a couple weeks ago, I think it was the 25th of July, I got done preaching. I drove home. We loaded up the truck and we drove to the Black Hills. We spent some time there. No, I didn't drive a Harley. It wasn't in Sturgis. Uh, somebody asked me that. Um, and then we went, uh, we went through Yellowstone. We spent some time in Montana. We came back. I got back last week. And then I just packed up and went up to Wisconsin and I taught for the last... Uh, uh, the last week there and just returned. So it's good to be home. It's good to be home. It's good to be here. And welcome to Grace Community Church. For those of you who, this is your home church, glad to worship with you this morning. For those of you that you're just visiting, you're just checking us out, maybe you're just driving through town or you're, you're, you've just come to visit, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's our prayer that you would be blessed through the declaration and demonstration of the gospel, through the word and through his people. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be taking a look at uh, taking a look at something which is of eminence importance. It's, it's the gospel. Who knew, right? If you've been here at Grace Community Church, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. We, can't, we can use the word so often that it kind of loses its punch um, and sometimes maybe even loses its meaning. We're going to dig down deep into that this morning. And I'll open with a question. And here's the question. What you think about this um, before we get into this morning's text and where we're headed. I want you to think about this to yourself silently. What's God's disposition towards you when you are at your absolute worst? So in other words, what I'm asking is, how do you feel that God feels about you? Not when you're on top of your game, but when you are at your worst. And I'll let you define for yourself what at your worst looks like. Now, we're going to come back to that very same question later, and we're going to dig down a little bit deeper. You see, here's the, the stakes of, of this question are immense. Get it wrong, get it wrong, and we will mischaracterize God, and in doing so, sentence ourselves to joyless Christianity. Joyless Christianity, what do you mean? I mean, worship that looks like duty and not devotion. Service that seems like drudgery and not joyous. Um, just a, a general apathy where the church, the body of Christ, the body of Christ is characterized by consumerism and not mission. Some of you are like, well, that's the church in America. Yeah, kind of is. It kind of is. So uh, there's a good possibility maybe we don't know the gospel as well as we think we do. Or, if we answer it correctly, we'll experience the joy and the life of Christ poured into us. This, on an individual level, is personal revival. On a corporate level, it's, it's corporate revival. And, and as, as I read the scriptures, that's supposed to be normative discipleship. And that's what grace is all about. Grace Community Church is about being and making disciples. It's just a fulfillment or an expression of the Great Commission. It's the last thing that Jesus said before he sent it into heaven after the resurrection. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. Now, that assumes we know who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. If we don't know the heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, and the heart of the Spirit, there's a good chance we're not sure about how we think God thinks of us. So it's our vision over the next five years it's our desire, it's our hope, it's our prayer that every single person here that, that considers Grace Community Church, their quote-unquote 
church. This is my church. It's our desire that every person here is actively engaged, actively engaged as a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. That will bring out personal revival in your life. I guarantee it. Not going through a discipleship program or getting in classes or getting in small groups, all of which are good, but encountering the living Christ will bring revival in your life. It'll bring revival in this church and, and it will impact the community. It's our desire that as each one of you begins to actively engage the gospel and actively engage in following Christ, that hundreds, even thousands of people would come to know Jesus because of what he's doing in and through the body of believers here at Grace Community Church. So for that to happen, we have to engage the gospel and be engaged by the gospel three different levels, three different levels. First of all, our hope, engaging gospel truth. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. The focus of this morning is to know the truth of the gospel, to know the truth of the gospel, to understand it and to believe it to know, to understand, and to believe. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Next week, we're going to look at our support, engaging one another in gospel community. Because if we know and we understand and we believe this morning, there's a good chance by Monday morning you will have forgotten or started to drift away. And that's why we need each other. So we're going to take a look at the importance of community, gospel community next week. And then the third week, we're going to take a look at our purpose. What's our mission? Engaging the culture with the gospel. That is our mission. So please open up your Bibles. We're going to start with the book of Romans chapter 1. Chapter 1. So please turn there and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is our desire, Lord, that we would be able to answer that question. How do you think about us when we're at our worst? And answer that sincerely, not just what we know we ought to say, but something that we feel tangibly in our hearts. And may that good news, that gospel transform our hearts and draw us closer to you, closer to one another, and that we might live a joyous life, the life of Christ poured out in us. Help me to preach and teach in such a way that Jesus is lifted up and that he is exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Our hope, we want to engage the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Now, how many of you have heard the gospel, I don't know, a million times since you've been coming to Grace Community Church? I'm not going to ask your hands for the next statement, I want you to think about this, and rhetorically, it's a question. How many of you are rolling your eyes thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to talk about the gospel again. How many times are we going to have to talk about the gospel? Every time you're here. Why? Because you're not, you're not programmed. It's not, you're not, we're not hardwired to actually believe it's true. So in the Bible, probably the greatest treatise on the subject of the good news of the gospel is Paul's epistle, his letter to the church in Rome. Now, this is a church he didn't plant, so he wants to make doubly sure they understand the gospel. And in verse 15, we start here in verse 16, in verse 15 he says, I'm eager to come preach to you the gospel. I'm eager to come preach to you the gospel. Who are the, who's the church in Rome? Pagans or Christians? Christians, he's eager to come preach the gospel to people who already know the gospel. So, yeah, we need more of it all the time. So here's what he says in his opening. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, in it, it being the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I want to stop. I just want you to think and mold this over. What's the essence of Christianity? Somebody comes up to you. Uh, they work with you. They go to school with you. Um, they're a friend of yours. And they say, hey, you're, you're a Christian. You go to church. You're one of those people. You're, you're religious, I guess. So what is, what's the essence of Christianity? What would you say? What would you say to them? You be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. That's what Peter says in in First Peter chapter three. What what do you tell them? Here's what I thought all of you believed back in the day before I'd ever stepped foot inside a church. Went to came to college in 1985 as a as a freshman in college, straight out of high school, 18 years old. Didn't enter a church until 1988. So it took me a few years, but but if you asked me my my freshman year in Iowa. What do you think the essence of Christianity is? Here's what I would have said. Now, here's the sad reality. What I'm about to say is probably what some of you actually think. And you're in church. And some of you have been raised in the church. Here's what I thought the essence of Christianity is, or was. I don't believe this anymore. Brooks, 1985 version of self, 18 years old. In a sentence... What's the essence of Christianity? Here's the good book. Now go be good. And if you're good, God will accept you. That's what I thought Christianity was. By the way, that's what all religions essentially are. There's some ethical moral standard. And if you keep that ethical moral standard, then the gods or a god uh, will accept you. This is religion. Here's the law. Keep it. Here's the teaching. So I thought, I I never read any of Jesus' teachings, but I assumed he was a great teacher, a good moral leader, a good, might even be the son of God. Whatever that means, I didn't know at the time. But I believe that the Bible was the good book and there's some good stuff in here and it helps us be good. And if we're good, God will accept us. How many of you, that's, that's how you perceive religion to be. Maybe not Christianity. It's true. That's what religion is. That's what religion is. From on Sinai, here's the Ten Commandments. Keep them and live, keep them not, and you shall be cursed. That's the law. That's the law. By the way, is the law good? Of course it is. Of course it is. But is it the gospel? Is it the gospel? The gospel, by the way, this is a typo. This is marvelous that I actually screwed this up, right? The gospel is not good news. It's not good advice. That, that sentence makes absolutely no sense. So I swore to myself after I botched that in the first service, remember to change that for the second service. So what did I do between services? I chatted with about 30 people and then came in here and started preaching again. So it still looks horrible. Let me tell you what it should say. The gospel is good news, not good advice. So try to retrain your eyes. Stop looking at that PowerPoint. Just listen. The gospel is good news, it's not good advice. Now, here's why that matters. We tend to think of the Bible as here's how you live. It's good advice. Is, the, is Proverbs full of good advice? What do you think? Is the Bible full of good advice? Does it show you how to be good? Yes. That's not the gospel. See, the word gospel there, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
uh, euangelion is the, is the Greek word. It means, literally, good news. It's not good advice. So in Paul's context, good news came city to city through a herald or a town crier. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have cables streamed all the time where there's news on a 24-hour cycle. When, a, when something big happened, a town crier would come into the city and they would go to the city, city square and they would make a huge announcement. They would blow trumpets and every woman would come. It's like, okay, what's the big news? Victory is ours! The king is victorious over the pagan invaders or the Assyrians or the Canaanites or the Greeks or whatever. And everyone's like, yeah, deliverance, deliverance, we're victorious. Now I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine in your city in the first century or in Iowa City, 2021, somebody comes into town, they stand on the soapbox, can I have your attention? I have good news. Here's a book that shows you how to live. And if you can keep these commandments, God will accept you. And if not, you're toast. What? That's not good news. That's a way to live that if you keep it, you'll be accepted. And if you won't, you won't. It's not good news. Might be good advice. It's not the gospel. So, the gospel is good news. What makes it so good? I want you to leapfrog forward to a few chapters in in Romans chapter 3. Very quickly, the rest of chapter 1, Paul says, okay, let's take a look at those who don't have the gospel. They don't have the law, the pagans. God's wrath is being revealed against them because although they know the truth about who God is, that there is a God, they suppress that truth because of their unrighteousness, and therefore God's given them over to sin, and there's all sorts of immorality and wickedness. Oh, but chapter 2, you religious people, you go to church, you go to synagogue, you think you're so much better because you have the Ten Commandments. Good for you. Do you keep them? No, didn't think so, so you're not any better. And then he sums it all up in chapter 3, in verses uh, 1 through 10, where he says, there's therefore, there's no one righteous, not one, not one. And then he gets in verse 21, but now, but now, there's a contrast, that conjunction, but, but now, but now, the righteousness of God it has been manifest apart from the law. Law is good, but you don't get this righteousness by obedience to the law. This, this righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they do bear witness to it. This righteousness, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a, what's the word? Gift. As a gift. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is the essence of Christianity? It's not good advice, it's good news. And what's the good news? The good news is that you, if you are in Christ, if you have believed this truth, this gospel truth, this good news, here's the good news. You've been justified by his grace as a gift. You say, well, that'd be wonderful. I actually understood what it means to be justified. Okay, well, let's dig. Let's understand. What is this good news? Again, remember the goal of the message? Understand what it is and understand it and then believe it. Okay, so we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means two things. To be justified. How many of you are self-justifiers? Or maybe, no, correct that. Your spouse is a self-justifier. How many of you are married to a self-justifier? If you have a kid who's a self-justifier, or you work for a self-justifier, or you have someone who works for you that's a self-justifier. Someone who justifies themselves, what do they do? 
they try to convince you they're right. Justify that statement, Brooks. Well, see what I mean? Let me tell that to when you when you go embark on justifying yourself, what you're doing is proving that you're right about something. Proving you're right. So what this says is we've been justified. What's that mean? Proven right. Wait a minute, because I I'm kind of a kind of a jerk. I'm not sure how I'm proven right. Oh no, you don't prove yourself right. You don't self-justify. Who justifies here? Justified by his grace, which is a gift. God justifies through faith, through faith. So let's take a look. It means two things. Number one, it means that we're declared not guilty, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means we're forgiven. We're forgiven. Why? Some of you who are prone to believe the gospel is good advice are thinking, well, because God's given us his law and and I've tried hard. No, no. No, Tim Keller says that the key way you can find out if someone's not a Christian is if you say, are you a Christian? They answer with, I'm trying. No, it's not you're trying. It's not what you're doing. It's what's been done. Declared not guilty. This is something that God declares, not me. God declares that I am forgiven. You say, well, Brooks, how could I be forgiven? If, if you knew all the things I, I've done or all the bad thoughts I've thought, I don't need to, I don't need to, but let's just say that I did. It's just that I say, well, then I also know that you're declared, I'm declared not guilty, not because of what we've done, but because what, what Christ has done. Here's what this means. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, now what's going on here? It's the great exchange. Jesus took my sin. In other words, Christ died the death that I should die. Not just physical death, but a separation from God. See, the wages of sin, Paul says in Romans 6.23, is death. We earned it, but we don't receive it. Why don't we receive it? Because Christ has taken it upon himself. So I'm declared thereby not guilty. Not because, not because I haven't sinned. We've already established that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How can I be declared not guilty if I'm guilty of sin? Because the justice that, because God is holy, because God is just, God must execute his justice. He has satisfied his justice, not by punishing me, but instead a substitute, his son received my punishment. So the death I should die, Jesus dies. Therefore, I'm declared not guilty. There's a pardon for sin. And everyone said, yay, awesome. And that's the gospel. Or is it? Well, that's part of it. We're not, we're only halfway there. That's only a piece of it. That's only part of the declaration. There's another part of the declaration. The other part of the declaration is, I'm also declared righteous. When you see in Romans or throughout the New Testament, righteous, just, righteous, just. It's the same Greek word. Context determines how the English is translated. It means to, to be declared righteous is to be declared right. So when, you ju- when you're justified, you prove that you're right. See, rightness, righteousness, to be declared justified. So God looks at you, that is, if you're in Christ, and you've received and you've believed the gospel, he says, well, he's not guilty. Why? Because well, Christ has taken his sin and, and received the punishment himself. 
But he also says, oh, and he or she is righteous. You're like, wait a minute. I might be able to buy that God forgives. And he puts that sin, that punishment that I deserve on his son. I can, I can swallow that. But are you telling me that the father looks at me and says, he is righteous? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Actually, I'm not telling you that. That's Paul's telling you that. And the New Testament and the Old Testament is telling you that. So God looks at you, if you're in Christ, and says, he or she is righteous. How? The death he died, I should have died, but I didn't. He died. The life he lived, I should have lived, but I can't. When, when the father spoke of Jesus, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When the, when the Bible talks about Jesus, said, he lived to do the will of his father. So he has accomplished merit and he grants me that merit. So his, all these medals for righteous conduct, righteous living, righteous this, loving, all of that. He, that's, that's how God sees me. He's like, ah, okay, that sounds too good to be true. How many of you think, well, that sounds good. That's good news. That's why it's called the gospel. Now, many of you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you think it's too good to be true? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm kind of there. Exactly. And that's why we have a church full of apathetic people that see worship as duty and not devotion. We have the gospel, but it hasn't penetrated and transformed our hearts because we can't quite believe it's true. How could this be true? Let me give you an illustration. Let's just say that there is a a man. He's infinitely wealthy, monetarily. He has resources that he couldn't spend in a lifetime if he tried, nor could he give it all away. Nor could he give it all all away. And and on the other side of town, on the other side of the tracks, there's a young woman, and she is in poverty. Now, poverty means you have nothing, right? Well, she's beyond poverty because when she graduated college, she got all of these letters from Visa and Discover Card and uh, American Express. And, and some of those letters, she opened them up. She's like, oh, look, it says I got $5,000. This is a check. I just signed it. So I just signed it and I got this check. And then I went on this vacation and I bought this car and I got this house. And, I, and so lo and behold, she's got half a million dollars in consumer debt and she's totally bankrupt. So she's not just, she's not at zero. She's 500000 in the hole. Now, when she tries to get a loan for anything, she can't because her credit's terrible. She's a debtor. Make sense? Now, the two of them meet, fall head over heels in love, and they get married. Now, there's no prenups. No prenups. What happens to her debt? It becomes his. What happens to his wealth? It becomes hers. And you say, it just doesn't seem fair. It's love. Who are you to tell this man it's not fair that he pays his wife's debt with his own account? Who am I to tell this man that he can't transfer his meritous wealth to her? Does that make any sense? No one would balk at that. That's the gospel. Only we're not talking about financial debt. We're talking about moral debt. That is why this is good news. Now, I've been preaching for almost 25 years, and I've taught verse by verse through the book of Romans. It took me four years 
I've taught through Ephesians verse by verse. I've taught through Galatians verse by verse. I've taught through 1 John. I've taught through 1 Peter. I intellectually know what I'm talking about. Intellectually. But do I believe? Do I actually believe that that's true? Do I believe that's true? So back to the question. Do you believe it? Is it good news or a good, a good advice? Which is it? You say, well, I know intellectually. I'm not asking you what you know you should believe. What do you, what do you believe? So what's God's disposition? His feelings towards you, his feelings towards you when you are at your absolute worst. When, when you swore you wouldn't blow up the kids, but you did, and you made them cry, and now your wife won't talk to you for the next day and a half. When you've looked at porn, maybe for the first or the thousandth time, after swearing you would never do it again. After swearing you were going to start coming to church, but you know what? You just don't want to, and you feel kind of bad for not wanting to. For lying, for cheating, for coveting, for lusting, for the realization, if you're honest with yourself, that you look at a lot of people in the world and you think to yourself, you know, at least I'm not as bad as them. Or for the fact that you're sitting here right now wishing you weren't married to the person that you're sitting with and the only reason you're not bailing on them is because of the kids? How does God feel about you right now in that moment? Right now. Not 10 minutes from now when you can clean your act up, but in the midst of your fallenness. When there's blood on your hands or the knife in your hand, and pride, lust, and malice in your heart. How does God, if you're in Christ, I'm talking about those of you who who are in Christ, you've been declared not guilty, you've been declared righteous, how does God feel about you? At that moment, right now, how does he feel? Tricky question, isn't it? This is where the rubber meets the road. This isn't a doctrinal creed, a test. This is, do you believe what you say you believe? So, I just finished a book called Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. And he says in another book, a different book called uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, I'm utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question and only one question. By the way, this is just marvelous. I just, someone told me this. I, that's a quote by Brendan Mann. I just pulled it from a book, right? One question and only question. One, two, three. There's four questions. <laughs> so the first question is the one and only question. The, the others are just saying the same thing differently. <laughs> PowerPoint's a masterpiece this morning, right? So here we go. You ready for the one question? You and I are going to stand before God and God's going to ask us this question. Did you believe that I actually loved you? 
Did you? Did you believe that I really loved you, though? Seriously. Uh, did you? That, that, I, that I waited for you day in and day out? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? That I actually desire you as a human being? That I want you? Do you believe that? So there's a song that I heard, I don't know, maybe five years ago when it came out by Andrew Peterson. The song that he is worthy, is he worthy, he is, we sang that. Here's another song that he wrote. It's called um, Be Kind to Yourself. And I remember listening to that as I'm riding my bike and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound right. If he's saying, be disciplined, I could get off board with that. If he, say, if he said, put to death your sin, okay, okay. But this sounds a little bit mushy to me. A little too feel-goody. A little too self-esteemy. So let me just read you some of the lyrics. You got all that emotion, it's heaving like an ocean, and you're drowning in a deep, dark well. I can hear in your voice that if you only had a choice, you'd rather be anyone else. And he says, I love you just the way you are. This is God speaking. I love you just the way you are. I love the way that he made your precious heart. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Next verse. I know it's hard to hear when that anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your own chest. When the voices in your mind are anything but kind and you can't believe your father knows best. I love you just the way you are. I love the way he's shaping your heart. Be kind to yourself. How's that it end when, when the war that you're in is just you against you against you? You've got to learn to love. Learn to love. Learn to love your enemies too. You can't expect to be perfect. It's a fight you've got to forfeit. You belong to be whatever you do. So lay down your weapon, darling. Take a deep breath and believe that I love you. Be kind to yourself. And I, I remember listening to that song thinking, that sounds just dangerous. Is it? So, I'm intimately equated with Romans 7. That's the chapter where Paul talks about the law and how it's good and that it justifies no one. And he says that I know that the law is good, it's holy, it's right. And I know the good that I ought to do, but the good that I ought to do is not what I do. Instead, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So it's not, it's not my true self, it's my sin that dwells within me. And then he cries out, what a wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? It's a rhetorical question because he answers it. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he morphs into chapter 8 where he says, therefore there's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. Now, let's come back to Romans 7. When I read Romans 7, I read... I read my own personality and my own theology into what Paul is saying. Therefore, when I read Romans 7, I read it with a self-accusatory voice and anger. The good, you see me do this on pulpit. Quoting Paul, the good that I want to do, it's not what I do. But the evil that I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. Is that how Paul is emoting in, in Romans 7? 
I don't know. It's text. You can't read emotion. But I see an angry man. Why? Because I'm not programmed to be kind to myself. And I don't know that I fully believe the truth of the fact that God sees me as righteous and beloved in his son. Somehow I have it in my mind that I'm not worthy of his love or to be desired until I can show him that I'm not a failure. And so I am not inclined to be kind to myself because I have this false belief, which is not the gospel, but it's works righteousness, that if I can discipline myself, if I can just be angry at myself for my failure and just show myself that it's so stupid that I could just quit doing it, then maybe I'll stop being an idiot. And there's another thing. A couple years ago in community group, I used that word, and and moms hate it when I use that word. Could you not use the word? Because I tell my kids not to say idiot, and you keep calling yourself idiot all the time. And so I'm in community group, and this lady says, you know that word, you, keep, you, you call yourself an idiot all the time. Do you think that's how God sees you? Well, I am an idiot. Right? Don't answer that. You, you see the point? Okay, now, I will confess to you, I'm, I'm telling you I'm, I'm saved. I'm justified. I believe that I'm pardoned because of what Jesus has done. I believe-ish that I'm righteous because of what Jesus has done. I believe the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. I believe, I believe, I believe. And yet, I don't know that God's all that fond of me unless I'm doing well. What about you? What do you believe? This isn't a... Not what you would check on a gospel doctrine quest questionnaire. It's what do you feel God feels about you at this moment? When you're at your worst. How you answer that determines whether or not you really believe the gospel. At a level which transforms your life. So I'm reading Abba's Child and there's this story about this Catholic priest, and he goes to visit his uncle Seamus in Ireland, who's his 80th birthday, and, and he's in Ireland, and they wake up before dawn, and it's dark, and they silently get dressed, and they go out to this beautiful lake and this landscape in the countryside, and they're waiting for the sun to come up, and the sun comes up over the horizon, you can see the sun just gl- uh, glittering off the water, and, and uncle Seamus takes off skipping, 80 years old. And he's got this big, giant, happy grin on his face. And, and this, this priest says, Uncle Seamus, you look happy, truly happy. Mind sharing why you're so happy? And he says, I ought to be happy, lad. My Abba's fond of me. And I read that. And I got a little lump in my throat. I don't know that I've ever been able to believe that God is fond of me. Love me? He has to. I've read his word. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love me? He has to. 
Romans 8 says, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. Love me? He's bound to. It says in the end of Romans that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. But is he fond of me? I doubt that. Why would he be? Do you see how precarious the gospel is? How it's such good news that it's too good to be true? Hosea chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but this is a book I want to recommend to you. Not Hosea, that too. It's a book, Dale Ortland. Write it down. Dale Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly by, by Dale Ortland. The, the purpose of this book is, is to help the reader, the follower of Christ, understand the heart of the Father for us as his children. Okay? Because all of our misbehavior and all of our bad thinking always flows out of us misrepresenting God's character. You remember when I was talking about my anger in Romans 7? What am I doing? I'm projecting how I would think of me as the way God thinks of me. Well, here's a revelation. Did you know that God isn't Brooks? That his ways are not my ways and they're not your ways either? So, yeah, thank God, right? Praise Jesus. So here's the deal. He, in the, one of his chapters, chapter 7, he talks about the, the compassion of God. And he talks about Hosea and the prophet Hosea. Now, if you're not familiar with the prophet Hosea, chapter 1, God comes to an Israelite, a, a man by the name of Hosea. He's a prophet, Israel's prophet. And he says, I want you to go marry Gomer. He said, well, Gomer's an odd name. So that's one strike against Gomer, but it's worse. She has an occupation. She's a prostitute. That's how she makes her living. She sells her body to other men. He says, that's who I want you to marry. And, and, you know, when God says, go do this, he doesn't pull a Jonah and go to Tarshish. He's, he goes and he marries this woman. He enters into a covenant with her and they, they begin to have children together. And then, and then he wakes up and like some bad country western song, she's not there anymore. She's peddling her wares again. And she's, she's in the bed of another man. He, she, and he goes to this other man. God says, go redeem her. And he literally pays out cash to buy his wife back, his wife back. And then, and here's what God says. Hosea, Israel is my bride and she's just like yours. It's like, oh, what a metaphor. So here we have chapter 11, verse seven and nine. God says to Hosea, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up? Oh, Ephraim, that's a, a, a pseudonym for Israel. Ephraim, Israel, same thing. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two nations which, which God's wrath has been poured out upon. And then he says, my heart, this is how God feels about us. He says, my heart recoils within me, skips a beat. It recoils in me. I can feel my, I can feel my heart. My heart recoils within me. My compassion, it grows warm and tender. I, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am, a God, I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. When you're at your worst, like Ephraim, like Israel, when you're at your worst, what is God's heart at that moment towards you? 
What's the text say? Tell me what the text says. What's it say? Compassion. We have a tendency, Ortland says, and it's true, we have a tendency to project our anger and how we would respond in a similar situation on God. So in, in a similar situation, we would have a dam of righteous indignation and that dam would be holding back wrath and our self-control, we would hold back that wrath and we think, surely God is ready to strike me. He's just ready to strike me. What does the text say? No, there's a dam holding up a well of compassion. Do you know what he wants to do to you? He does not want to crush you. He wants to run to you. He wants to pick you up in his arms. He wants to squeeze you so that you can feel his heart beat for him and so you can realize his heart stopped beating for you. That's because he loves you in the midst of your worst. And if we only could just believe that for 10 minutes, we would begin to experience revival in a way that I don't believe we have. That's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for me. He wants us to understand that, yes, there is a doctrinal component to the gospel. It's good news. Christ died for your sins. And he wants you to receive him. He wants you to become his child so that according to Romans chapter 8, you'd receive the spirit and by that spirit, you'd recognize him as Abba, Daddy. Not who's willing to strike you down or ready to just smack you because you're... You've dropped the ball for a millionth time, but a father who, will, who longs for his child, the, the prodigal son's father who ran to him before he had uttered any word of confession. That's good news. Now, if we would only believe it, if we would only believe it. So as we close this morning, The gospel's a free gift. For some of you, you've never received that free gift. You've always looked at the scriptures as, try to be good. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, he died for my sin. I'm not sure what that means, but I know I'm trying. Stop trying and receive the free gift of grace. John says, to all who believe, to those who receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Believe, trust, so what does it even mean? It means that you acknowledge that apart from Christ, you're lost and that you simply confess to him. You, you pray the Christian prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what that does? That ignites God's heart for you. And, it, and it's through Christ that he can draw near and you can draw near. Receive him as savior. For those of you that have been following him, keep following, draw near, get to know the heart of the Father. Get to know the heart of the Father. If receiving Christ is something that you would like to do, I'd encourage you today to take out the prayer card in front of you. It looks like this. And just write down your name and your email. Say, I've decided to follow Christ today. I want to start following Christ. Or I'd like to meet with someone so someone could explain to me how to do this. But let someone know. Let us know that today is a day that you want to begin following Christ. And for the rest, some of you are like, ah, not convinced. I'm intrigued, but I'm not convinced. Keep coming. Come this fall as we open up the Gospels and we see Jesus week after week after week encounter a different person. People just like you with questions just like you. 
Invite your friends that don't know Christ. Get everybody in on this good news, this gospel. But whether you've been following Jesus for the last 30 seconds or whether you've been following Jesus for the last 30 years, stop trying to win his affection. Stop laboring to win his affection. Instead, strive and labor to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Yes, work hard, but work hard to remember and believe the truth of not what you do, but what he has already done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would open up hearts. And if there is someone here this morning who has not yet received you, may today be the day where they cry out, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I need this gospel. I need, I need Christ. And Lord, would you meet them where they are at today? Father, thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of compassion, and that all of your wrath has been spent on your son and that there is only room for love and acceptance for the child of God. Lord, we know that intellectually. Help us to believe it down to our core. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you are dismissed, Pastor Josh has an announcement on how you can apply the gospel just this week.